Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 57 of the North Meet South Web Podcast. So speaking of crack smoking authors who hate children. <laughs> yeah. Knox in no, Fox in socks. Knox in Fox box. Fox on box in Knox yeah. in socks. Fox in socks on Knox in box. That's I just love Fox in socks. Yeah, Fox in socks. I just I just love these books and Dr. Seuss, there had to be something wrong with him. So the story goes that apparently he was in World War 2, I think, with Stanley, so Stanley of Marvel Comics and him—they were both in the army mm, or really? whatever. Yeah, and um, but yeah, Doctor Seuss was like he tried to draw like pinup girls, and if you've seen any of Doctor Seuss's books, you know that they're not really true to life humans. They're kind of like sure elongated, right, yeah. weird-looking humans. So he started making children's yeah. books, but he hated kids. He did not like oh, really? children. His theory was like. You make them and I'll entertain them, kind of thing. So, but I was really? I was saying to you before gonna, the show. I'm gonna push back, and I don't think that's true. No, it the is. Doctor, I, I looked it up. I looked it up because I'm like, there has to be something wrong with him. But um, yeah, I was saying before the show, I love reading like Fox and Socks, the ABCs, are two of my favorites to read, especially when Eli's getting cranky at bedtime, and like the crankier he gets, the faster I read. And Fox and Socks gets really interesting once you get around the uh, Tweedle Beetle Bottle battles with the puddles and the bottles and the bottles and the battles and the. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it gets harder and harder as you go faster and faster, but it's so much fun. Okay. Theodore Geisel did not hate children. He was a bit of depressive and brooder. He didn't like being around the energy of children. He didn't have any of his own. Dr. Seuss didn't really like people all that much. He was more or less introverted than not one who liked social interactions and expectations. He needed quiet and alone time. I don't know. To hating children would be a huge exaggeration and a great fake story to suit folklore. (laughs) Eh, I don't know. Yeah, so it sounds like he didn't have any kids in any case. And the quote that you gave is correct. He said, you have them, I'll entertain them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. That is true. Yes, Yes, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. So much fun. But I just want to hear someone else read it so I can get the cadence right. Because there's like mm-hmm. there's the correct cadence to read a Dr. Seuss book. Because if you if you've ever read them, and I'm sure many I never did as a child, to be honest. But um, for those of you that have read them, the the line breaks and the and the punctuation are often in odd places. So I try to read them as they're written, and you get these really long run on sentences that just keep going and going and going, and they mm-hmm. and and they rhyme and they don't make any sense, like. Big F, little F, what rhymes with... Uh, no, what begins with F? Four fluffy feathers on a fifa fefa fef. Like, it's it's totally nonsensical, but it's just fun to read. And, mm-hmm. It is. And, and, we and you like to see how fast you can like kind of read, read. Yeah. Fifa yeah. fefa fef. And as is as 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 I'm trying to remember, like, we used to... I used to be able to say all that book, A through Z, without yeah. looking, because we'd read it so many times. It's been a long time now, though. Auntie Annie's now my, alligator. Now my, a A A, big yeah. B, little B. What begins with B? Barber, baby, bubbles, and a bumblebee. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, and then you, and then Ree always because Ree's usually getting his bottle ready, Eli's bottle ready while I'm reading to him at night time. So when I'm reading the ABCs, when I get to Big D, Little D, there's just like this ju- juvenile snort from the kitchen behind me. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like yeah, okay, all right, come on, he's ten okay months old. Now. <laughs> yep. Oh my word. Those Aussie women. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. They're wonderful. That's They're what I was that's what I was gonna say about those Aussie <laughs> women. They're amazing. Hey, hey, you know what we should do before what we should forget? We do? Because we did what last we episode. So apologies to Joe Lennon from Work Vivo. But we should thank our wonderful sponsors this week, right we now. Should. And then we should thank we should, our should. principal sponsor for this episode, CTO Sumo. CTO Sumo. All right, hold on. 
See, I have this in my show notes back here somewhere, not in my show notes, in our little convo mm-hmm. where I have all these and uh, I always have to go find them. Andreas Hubenthal, Joe from Work Vivo, JP Davey, CTO Sumo, and Rasmus Nielsen. Do you know? I think there is another one. I think there is another one. I'm is pretty sure one? that I received a Stripe notification. Somebody from the goodness of their own heart went to our website at northmeetsouth.audio and they there's a little donate link on there so if you don't want to sponsor the show in a in a, in a bigger capacity you can make a one one-off donation so thank you very much too and i don't even know your name i've only got your email address which i won't read out on air but mp chain or chain how however you pronounce that thank you very much for your donation so CTO Sumo's who are sponsors, our chief sponsors this episode? CTO, yeah, CTO Sumo is our sponsor for this episode. So it looks like this is on-demand CTO services for your startup, which CTO stands for Chief Technical Officer, is that mm-hmm. or Chief Technology Officer. Mm-hmm. So they do hiring and mentorship, software architecture and development, agile technical project management, auditing, and they have a bunch of people who they can help you do this with. Yeah, so pretty cool. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, CTO Sumo. You rock. Yeah. You rocks on socks on Fox Unbox. <laughs> okay, so, so I've got a couple things I want to talk about today. Let's let's launch in, launch in, let's launch into this thing that we were talking about just before the show. With okay, because we're going to talk about this, podcast, and we're also going to talk David about uh, committing assets to the repo. No, compiled assets. Nah, don't. Uh, well, we'll do, hold, do on. hold on, hold on, hold we'll on. We'll get do there. it. Okay. Or don't do it. We'll, okay. It all depends. But yes, we'll talk. Committing compiled assets to the inform requests. Yeah, let's okay. talk form requests. So let's hit, let's hit inform requests. Okay, so should we give some context here about what David was talking about? So yeah, just before the show, we were talking with a friend of the show, David Hemphill, in our super secret cash money co-work cohort. Super, super secret. Super secret. So secret, in fact, that Jake speaks about it every other episode. True story. But David was talking about doing validation on currency. He runs an application, a SaaS called PushSilver, where you can do mm-hmm. some uh, awesome. some invoicing. I use it. You use it. it. Get busy getting paid, I believe, is the tagline. But he was talking about doing some validation of currency. And typically speaking, when you're working with currency, you want to get into the smallest whole units. So for... Uh, for you, Jake, in the United States, and for me, we deal with dollars and cents. So the idea Correct, being yep. that if you have an invoice for five dollars and forty cents, you would work with that and store that in your database as five hundred and forty cents. This helps you get around. We, yeah. Oh, oh, you need to do this. By the way, no yeah. one, please ever store floating point no numbers. Don't ever, don't do it. Store it as a small unit. Yeah. The the reason you do it in cents is to to work around issues with rounding predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you mm-hmm. store two decimal places in your database, but then you've got issues where um, you've got like parts of sense and then you've got like, you, then you have to go to three decimal places and things get hairy. So if you do everything in they sense do. and you do all of your calculations in sense, then you don't have to worry about those rounding issues. And then you just right. convert it into dollars and cents on display. But David had an interesting code question which was at which point in the process would you do the conversion from dollars to cents? Would you do it in a HTTP layer? Presumably you want it to be presented to your user in dollars and cents, right? You don't want them to have to be typing in cents. So if it's being presented to or entered by your user in dollars and cents, what, at which point do you convert it to cents? Yes. Yeah. And he was asking, do you do it in the HTTP layer before it gets passed to whatever saves those line items? So in the Laravel context, would you do that? In your controller, would you do that in the form request um, before it gets converted to cents? So would you use a mutator in your eloquent model to convert that attribute from dollars to cents, um, which is you know pretty easy. You just have a set amount attribute and then just multiply, divide, sorry, yeah. yeah, divide by 100. No, um, multiply. Sh- no, multiply. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. Multiply to, to shift that decimal place over two spaces until you get sent. Yep. So um, if you don't use a mutator, it's it's simple. It makes your test easier because you don't have to account for the conversion with your assertions and all that kind of stuff in, in your testing. But then doing the conversion in the HTTP layer could be seen as the quote unquote wrong place to do that. Mm. Yeah, so is it you know done at the controller or the request object? So 
I mean, so should we give our own answers here to this question first before we yeah. get into the form requests? Yeah, give give us your answer then, because I didn't actually watch. I, know, I saw you posted a couple of uh, videos as you do from your car, uh, but I was out shopping Indeed. at the time, so I didn't see them yet. Yeah, I like to I like to live dangerously on the edge. So whenever these questions are asking them in the car, instead of attempting to text on the road, I will do a quick little video chat back to the the dudes. But I think what I said was, in fact, what I did say was that I like to be able to get it into cents as quickly as possible and convert mm -hmm. it back to dollars as late as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to be dealing with it as cents for as long as I can in my system. So as soon as it touches my system, I want it to be in cents. And at the very last moment, I will convert it out of cents back into dollars. So basically in the presentation layer is when I will convert mm -hmm. it out of cents and into dollars. So any math, anything that's going to be done is all going to be done in cents always 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 and then only in the presentation layer will i convert it back to dollars so that being said all of my tests everything assumes that it's going to be in cents and then what i will preferably do is i will in the front end have some sort of basically mutator on the form that will actually convert that to a cents format and that's what will get sent through to my back end right on my on the request so you would do that say in you would do that in a view component then? So you would post yes. the sense mm -hmm. already? Okay. Right, yeah. And when, yeah, that's typically what I would do or that's what I try to do. That's what I'm doing right now in the one application that I'm, two applications that I'm doing that in. Yeah, I, that's how I prefer to do it. And the thing is like- And at what point do you convert from sense to dollars? So are you doing that in the controller in the view as you pass it into the view or are oh. you doing that in a view component or in a blade view? Uh, I'm so, so you're saying at what point do I, do I send it back to like, where, where do I change it from de from sense to back to decimal? Yeah. So I will probably either like in the view itself, I might have a little helper method that I say like $2 or something like that. Uh -huh. Or if I, if I have like a complex set of stuff or if I'm passing back a collection to the front end, I might have a presenter mm -hmm. that I would grab that collection and then run it through a presenter. And that presenter would be responsible for, for changing each one of those two to a dollar format. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, I mean, my my take on it was that doing it in the re request object would be a weird place to do it because if you bump on any validation errors and you've converted the dollars that the user entered into cents, then you have to either convert them back or sorry, you do have to convert them back to dollars and cents because you're not going to want to send, you know, 540 back to the front end where the user is expecting to see 5.40. So I, I want to try and convert it to sense just before it goes into persistence and just before I display it. So I think I do it as late as possible in both both instances, whereas you're doing it as early as possible when you're putting it into your persistence layer, so into the database, and as late as possible when you're putting it back into the view, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels way more consistent to me that way. Like I can just count on it being in sense. By the time anything significant is touching it, it's going to be in sense. Yep. And I suppose if your view layer is Vue.js, then it's easy because you can store that as a computed property and work with that. And that's what you mm -hmm. send back to um, the backend. Whereas if you're just using plain old Blade, then you don't have that level of manipulation in the front end. So you would have to do it on the post. Yeah, you would, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily have to. I mean, you could use jQuery to do it. Like you could just have a hidden field that gets updated as soon as you update your currency field and then just don't put a name value on that currency mm -hmm. field. And then that would take care of sending it through in sense yeah. as well. So, I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could do that, right? But mm -hmm. I think for me as well, like that happens with my validation layer as well then. So in my validation layer, I'm just saying, hey, this must be an integer. There you go. Yeah. And then I don't have to worry about all this weird sense to like, because what if they put in like just a single decimal point and now like, you know, I don't know, just you get this weird stuff, right? Yeah. So I don't ever have to worry about it. I can just always say it's going to be an integer always. And there I go. So, but you're posting views. So again, as I said, if you're using jQuery in that example and you have the hidden input and you're not actually posting the dollar amount back, then you've got to like juggle converting that between cents and dollars if there's validation errors and things like that as well. Oh, when you send it back to the front end, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, so oh, if, yeah, no, if you do a true. post and sense. then there's an error and and you've you've posted cents, but the you know right. the users entered dollars. Input, yeah. So then that's that's the only issue I see with that kind of thing and, and you get into these weird circumstances. So we do that with phone numbers. Uh, for example, we allow our users to enter like uh, a valid phone number is 10 digits, 
mobile numbers here, we typically display as four numbers, then a space, then three numbers, then a space, then three numbers. And then, okay. um, and then national numbers like, you know, landline phone numbers would be two digits for the area code and then four numbers and then, and then a space and then four numbers. Um, but when we post that back, we actually manipulate that number to do the validation. So we would trim anything that's not a number to get it down to 10. And then we say like, this thing must be a number and it must be 10 characters. Um, and then we do some other validation to make sure that it looks like a phone number. Obviously, we don't know if it is an actual number that you can call and get a, get a you know, that it would actually ring, but as long as it looks like a number. So I could put in like 0498765432, which most likely is not a valid mobile phone number, but it looks like one. And yeah. so in those instances, like if you've entered 0498 space 765 space 432, and then we return that back to the view as the same numbers, but without spaces. It doesn't really matter right. too much. And we've got tooling to allow us to present that back in the same way and whatever else anyway. But there are there are something, especially like with currency, if I type $5.40 and you return $540, uh, that's going to make me freak out and not have confidence yeah. in the system because it's like yeah. I didn't enter 540 yeah no I get that that makes sense that does make sense and I know that like I have some I have uh I think there's some view components either that I made or that I didn't that basically take care of take care of some of that for you where like it's just like a currency mm. field right and it kind of will like they can put in 5.40 and the value will be 540 right and it just yeah. kind of does the display for you differently so there are tools out there to do that uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, no, that's a very valid point. Yeah, if you're going to return it back in a different format than what they entered, you might want to, or you're going to have to figure out how you want to massage that data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what he was, um, I mean, I think initially what he was talking about, oh, well, that was a sort of a different issue, right? So you, you kind of talked about that and said, well, you would have to uh, kind of make sure that you converted it back and all that stuff. And he said, no, no, I would just do it in the after check. Mm -hmm. So he was talking about, there's this, there's a spot in the, um, so he does it in the, in the after, so where he, he has, uh, you asked him where he would do it. Uh, and he said in the validator method on the form request, where you just say basically validator after, and then you can pass in a closure that will accept the validator as, a, as an argument. And then basically you can just do checks on the request itself. So you could say, if the amount that's being passed in is greater than the balance, then go ahead and add an error by saying validator arrow errors add, and then you can add the field that it's associated with and the error that you want to go back. Mm -hmm. And then you can do that for as, for as much as you want. Yeah. So basically at that point, what's happened is you validated that the input is all valid, but now you're adding additional rules that are saying like, okay, but this needs to be true as well. This needs to be true as well. It's so like the, the, you know, the amount has to be less than the balance. It may be you have like the amount has to be greater than a minimum payment amount. So like maybe you say it has to be greater than a hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you can say like the amount must have at least $2 in convenience fees or something, right? I'm just making crap up. Yeah, but like, sure. Yeah, the extra stuff that's kind of like your business rules, but doesn't fall under the the typical um, Laravel like int or you know string or required or those kinds sure. of out of the box things and and this allows you to do like arbitrary stuff as well. So the example yeah. here is that you know you would check does the amount that I'm trying to pay exceed the balance of the invoice, and so this is done within the form request in the with validator method, and right. it allows you to yeah. put in a validator after callback where you would put these extra checks where you would do like you know, is the is the amount I'm trying to pay more than the balance if the invoice has already been paid, if the amount is not more than zero, like, you know, you have to pay some amount. And then you can just use the validator errors property uh, or method to then add, like for the amount field, specify an amount that is less than the balance and so on and so forth. So I asked where you would do this because I, and this is where you and, and David were surprised that I've never really used form requests. I typically do most of my validation in the controller. And and I don't, I think, and you, I discussed this with you yesterday, that I think your threshold for complex is a bit lower than what mine is. So I would typically leave a lot of this stuff in my controller um, yeah. and just do like a request validate. And a lot of the time yeah. I'll just do like model, create, open parentheses, request, validate, and just pass the whole thing straight into the model. Because of, as of Laravel 5.6 or 5.7, I don't remember the version, the request validate method will just return the validated data. So if you hit any validation errors, it will like redirect you back with 
the validation errors and all of that stuff will happen and it won't create the model. But if the validation passes, then it returns the validated keys straight back into that model and only those keys so you don't have to worry about your mass assignments and things like that. And then it will create mm-hmm. the model and then you can go through that way. So typically I keep my controllers fairly thin and fairly specific to what they're doing. So I wouldn't have more than four or five you know, generic out-of-the-box validation rules. But it seems like there's some nicer, you know, some additional complexity that you can add to your validation. And this is where when you start needing to do this kind of stuff and you're wanting to extend the validator or do the afterhooks, I definitely wouldn't do that in the controller because then you have to worry about using like the validator facade and do validate validator make and all this other weird stuff. And that's that's the point that I would reach for the form request. Yeah, you can also do like authorization stuff in the form request yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So the form request will handle like authorization and like it basically has the authorized method at the top where all you need to do is return true or false and then it will the for, either return 403 for you or allow the request to happen. And then you have your validator and then you have your after validator stuff, you know, which can be triggered after you've kind of said, okay, yes, this is in the correct format. Now go ahead and apply my mm-hmm. business rules. So yeah, it really is a great spot for a lot of those things that, you know, really that's the thing about Laravel, right? Is it has a spot. Like it just have, it has these little bins, yeah. these little containers for it. So when I was trying to explain why Laravel was valuable to this to this new guy, I was like, okay, I, I tried to explain it like this. I was like, all right, I used to work retail. And uh, I worked at Old Navy and every week we'd have a truck come in and they we would have to like take all this inventory out of the bags and we'd have to put it into the spot that it went in. I said, now, the nice thing about this is that all of the Old Navies, they had the same setup in the back. Like you, everybody knew that men's shirts, t-shirts go this, this spot. Like there was just, there, it was organized, right? Everybody knew where it went. And so as a result, it could go very quickly and the whole team jumped on board and we got it cleared out in a, in a you know, couple hours whereas if you were asked to organize it every time a truck came in and every single old navy that you went to that was different it'd be a nightmare every single time because you're gonna have Mm -hmm. to invent it all over again so it's like laravel basically does that it basically gives you these containers to put all this stuff in so that Mm -hmm. when you're coming on to a new project you don't have to wonder where it is you just know right and so these form requests are one of those things that really does make it nice to just say like hey if you need a little spot for authorization you can chuck it in here if you need some you know if you have more than like two or three validation rules just throw it in here right if you have some business logic that's not too complex just go ahead and throw it in here right and uh, it's just nice. It wraps it up, kind of takes it out of your controller. So your controller can continue to be a very high level sort of document where you look at it and you can pretty much read exactly what's happening there. So I'm going to say, okay, I see there's a form request object that's going to go ahead and do the authorization validation. Great. By this time, I know I'm doing this. I'm going to go ahead and create a, um, you know, maybe I'm going to make an API request to go get some additional data, whatever. And then I'm going to, you know, combine that all into create a model, whatever, whatever. Right. So it, it just allows you to kind of take some of that cruft that would otherwise mm-hmm. live in the controller and kind of just chuck it out to a different class. Yeah. And, and I like that. I dig that. And I like the old Navy example. And as you were explaining that I was thinking back to uh, the movie, the founder and just in general, like more broadly McDonald's oh, yeah. and how, yeah, you could work at any different McDonald's anywhere in the world and the kitchens are all set up exactly the same. Yep. That's that kind of thing. And this is the argument that I've used to like bring Laravel into our business is that if we use Laravel and we develop Laravel in the quote unquote Laravel way, it means that we can hire any Laravel developer, whether they're in the same state as me or interstate or overseas, as long as, we do everything in the same way, it means you don't have to onboard them into using the framework. It means that they can come in and they can write Laravel in the Laravel way and they can just focus on the business-specific stuff. And it's just a matter of figuring out at what point you breach that threshold into, okay, now I need to use the form request and now I need to... Because, you know, you talk about doing authorization and all that kind of stuff in there. I would just do like this authorize and then request validate and, and... for most of our situations, that's fine. There are a couple of places where we've reached for um, the complex validation and custom rules and things like that, but they're few and far between. Yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's just like anything else where you kind of have these rules. Like for me, if I have like more than four validation rules, I'm going to put it in the form request object. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that's just kind of like my own personal rule and like we you know we name them very specifically so like i always know exactly where they're going to be and what they're going to look like so yeah i just find it to be nice and the funny thing is like i usually don't do authorization in there like authorization may still live in my controller mm-hmm. but uh you know typically like authorized method in my validator is just true <laughs> return yeah. true yeah but um but whatever yeah yeah so and t- i mean taylor talked about this recently we he posted some screenshots i think on twitter where it was basically look at all of the craft that is in my method now like when he's stubbing something out and just trying to see if something's going to work he'll put it all in that controller yeah, method right. and then you look at it and you go Ugh. and that's the point where he would then create the form request and move the authorization into the request and then you know do all the validation in the form request so really by the time that data comes into that method you know that the user that is hitting that method is authorized to carry out that action that the data is valid and that all you need to do is delegate that to the model you know to create the new record or fire off a job or an event or call out to an api or whatever and then return the user to the the next location so i can see it look maybe i'm not doing it the laravel way by not using the form request as much as i should be oh i don't know it's 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 a personal preference thing but it is a really it is a really handy little helper i I really enjoy it i love it look if i was greenfield i probably would do it more often to be honest but we have what's that now if you want if we were greenfield oh yeah sure sure so much garbage everywhere that we're just cleaning up and it's always like scary to rewrite this stuff because there are no tests in any of the legacy code. So yeah, it's like we can terrifying. rewrite this thing and the front end kind of looks like it did before, but then you no one notices it for a day or two and they're like, this doesn't work. And it's like, it doesn't work now. That means it's never worked. And then yeah. the old, <laughs> one of the old developers is like, why do you keep breaking stuff? I'm like, why didn't you write tests to verify any of that behavior? You know, I said, yeah. Yeah. There are no tests to say that any of it did what it should do. It was just pure happenstance that it did. And it's impossible. Like the business doesn't stand still. We need to add things and change things. And when we go and add things and change things, number one, we write the test to try and prove whatever was there before. But there is this just nest of functions calling functions, calling functions, calling functions. And it's very hard to see what all of the side effects are when you can't see them and there is no assurance of what is going on yeah Um, and in a real world application that's already running that's already got you know a whole bunch of users it's kind of scary and we kind of we kind of like move fast and break things and then when they break we fix them but i really hate it like i don't mind moving fast and breaking new things but moving fast and breaking things that have worked for a long time is not a nice situation and we move fast and break those things so that we can get to a state where we can, you know, safely do that. But it's just like the bumpy road to get from A to B that's really the the tricky bit. So the tests yeah. only help us moving forward. And as we rewrite stuff, we we do get those tests in there. So our coverage is certainly going up over time. And we're getting there. But there's just so much stuff that's built in that it's scary. Feels like you have to start with like the outside in tests. Right, yeah. you have to like start with like, hey, let's do some dusk tests or something to like just validate that these things are working. And then once you've got that, you have at least got a layer that's going to tell you if something crazy went wrong. Yeah, you know, it's all yeah. tricky, and it's it all is. Like, it's tough. You get there, but it's not a pleasant experience. I just kind of and even with even with tests, developer. I mean, we have we have a greenfield project that we did and that we're working on, and we just had something fail the other day, and. um we we charge convenience fees for using certain types of cards online mm-hmm. and depending on which state it is there's different rules about what type of convenience fees you can charge so some states they say nope you can't which is fine like they've they say like yeah we're going to protect our consumers and you can't charge a fee so it's like okay that's fine no problem and so we don't and so of course if you can't find like if the state that you're looking up like can't be found for some reason in the database of the of the fees that we're looking up we just say don't charge them anything like we'd rather charge them nothing yeah and lose a couple bucks than accidentally charge them something when you're not supposed to be so we just charge them nothing so uh jordan the other day messaged me he's like hey dude uh we haven't been charging fees for like a week and a half and i'm like oh (laughs) crap oh no so thankfully it was only it only came out to be some short some small amount but but we had tests I mean we had tests yeah but yeah. we changed the way that it worked on one of the 
we changed the way that it, this this thing worked. We basically changed a a scope. We changed something on a model from a scope to a static method, mm-hmm. and it worked pretty similarly. It just basically inside the static method, it called get instead of just calling the scope. Instead of just applying the uh, scope, it called get. Yeah. Right. And so there was a get, and then the and then the other uh, developer had put a first onto the end of it, which this is weird, right? So if you call get and then you call first, it goes to the first record in that database. Yeah. Yeah, right. Which is odd because it's like if you say like go where ID equals one and you mm-hmm. say get or go where go where ID equals 10 and then you say get. It says, okay, here's the record. And then yeah. if you say first on that record, it goes to the first record of the database. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem right. No. Right? That's weird. And so what it was doing is it was defaulting to our unknown our unknown category, which is a state fee of zero. So it was like, mm-hmm. crap. But we had tests there and it all, everything worked. It just so happened that the one test that we, or the couple tests that we had written were to test that a zero a zero value state worked and it yeah. was like that was the one that it was like yeah it was it was returning a zero value state but it wasn't supposed to be yeah, yeah. so anyway yeah it i mean we were able to fix it quite fast because we could tell what was happening but so it's just i mean still tests aren't a guarantee there's certainly yeah man, i run i run our you know huge test suite on this thing and it's certainly a lot of comfort to know that i didn't break anything else but yeah and i know what you mean we had some functionality that we introduced the other day to determine like when we log a service disruption it goes and finds all of the services that are affected by that disruption and flags them so that we can email them. Now, if you're not careful, we did like find me all services that are of a particular type. So they're all fixed line fiber, for example, and they're in these locations. But the way that we we had constructed the, the query in Eloquent meant that it was doing an or of those two things. Mm. So it was flagging mm, oh, services yeah. that weren't affected. And, but, the, but the test that we wrote was like, here is the, the service that is affected. Then we log the disruption and make sure that the service we say is affected is affected. But there was no, no test in there that's like, and this service should be, is here is similar, but is not affected. So Right, right. Yeah, um, you forget to write the opposite of the test. Yeah, yeah. You've, and, and that's like, we test the happy path, but we need to be careful of what the happy path actually is. And in this yeah. instance, the happy path is that like, it flags the affected services, but it also doesn't flag the unaffected services. So yeah, yeah, fun and games. The other thing, ooh, okay. while we're on that, in Go the ahead. same in the same system, this is a public service announcement. If you are using the notification facade and the route method, right? So if you do notification colon colon route, open parentheses uh. mail, comma, and then the recipient, right? If you pass an array of recipients, Laravel will not iterate over that array of recipients and send an individual email. It will shove all of those recipients into the to field of the same email. You probably don't want to do that. (laughs) I got a phone call. Excuse me. We have just emailed several customers all in the to field and a couple of them are not happy with it. I was so livid (laughs) that I was working from home that day. I was contemplating driving to work just so that I could vent my frustration. But then my sister called me and I decided to stay home instead. So, but yeah, a public service announcement. Don't do that unless you really intend to do that. Like there are situations where you would do that. No worries. But if you have like, don't. Don't email all of your users like that. Yeah, like, right. The only way that you're going to do that, the only way that it's going to send separate emails is if you're going to iterate over them. If you're going to do a each, Correct. like yep. a for each over that list of emails and then send each one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the other option would be to send it in like a BCC column or something like that, Correct. right? Yeah. But but I don't think you could do that from that for, from that spot. Like I, can't, I don't think you could do notification route mail and then pass like an array mm-hmm. of BCC and then emails. I don't think you could do that. But I'm maybe, not sure. Maybe you can, yeah. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like we've got the the transactional email service. It's just a matter of doing it properly. So yeah, yeah, that is just a a heads up to save anyone else the pain and frustration and potential rage of having to deal with that situation. Okay, compiled assets. Yep. Okay, so I will present the problem, and mm-hmm. you can present to me. I will I will present the pros and what I feel like are the cons. Oh, we of can have a debate. Assets. We never have okay. a debate. Yes, will be pleased. Yes. Okay, so here are the cons. Merge conflicts. Mm-hmm. Tons of them. Yep, Lots of merge conflicts. Everywhere. Yep. All of them. Everywhere. It's annoying. It's hugely annoying. 
if ever a branch gets pushed into master ahead of any of the other branches, so if I have like five pull requests out there and one branch gets pushed in, all of those have to be rebased. Mm-hmm. And then you push the next one and all of those have to be rebased. Mm-hmm. Push the next one and all of those have to be every single time. It's so frustrating. Okay, here are... So, so that's obviously not good and a huge waste of time. Here are the things that I really like about compiled assets. I really love that I can go to a repo, I can pull it down, and I can have a working version of it immediately. I don't have to install yarn. I don't have to yarn run. I don't have to debug why my NPM still doesn't work again for this particular you know thing that hasn't been touched in five years and is using mm-hmm. a way old version of Mix instead of Elixir or the other way around or whatever it is. This is the biggest pain in the butt. I hate that. Like, Or I'm, I'm pulling it down just to make some tiny change and I just want to make sure that it works on my machine, whatever, and I have to go through all this mess just to get it set up again. And it's like, I would much rather just have compiled assets I can pull down, I can make the tiny little change I need to make, run my tests, take a look at it and be done, right? Instead of having to spend an hour and a half trying to debug why my, you know, why my build environment doesn't work on this machine. Yeah. So I like that. I really like that. Uh, I also like that my server doesn't have to compile my assets for me. My deploys are really snappy. That's pretty quick. It's pretty mm-hmm. cool. What else? Yeah, I think I think basically the biggest things that I really love about it is that I don't have to ever mess with the... I don't ever have to mess with the stuff like the, the assets if I'm not making a change that's related to those. I guess the other thing too is like if I ever pull it down, like those are get ignored. If I've, if I've got it on my machine and I've been working on it, I should be fine. But if ever anybody pushes up changes, every time I pull down a new branch or every time I switch branch, branches i'm likely going to have to recompile because i don't know for sure mm-hmm. if they've got new code in there for css or for, yeah. or for javascript because mm-hmm. none of it's committed so i don't know so i have to every single time i change a branch i have to recompile all my assets because just to be sure because otherwise yeah. you, they might be coming up with some weird stuff so those are all the things that i really hate about not having compiled assets in there is like just all this like garbage that you have to do right yeah so the the, the bad thing, though, is the conflicts, is the merge mm-hmm. conflicts. So I'm trying to find, like, what is this middle ground? I, I really want to be able to mm-hmm. stick with compiled assets, but it's like, how do I get around having these merge conflicts constantly? And I feel like there is a way. I feel like there's got to be a way. And I've looked at uh, a couple, actually, confession, just one, uh, basically one guy's way of dealing with compiled files in Git and how he kind of handles that. But I'm interested to hear your perspective on it. Um, yeah, I think the pushing the compiled assets into Git is fine if you're working by yourself. But if there's multiple developers, if there's multiple branches on the go, the merge conflicts are just not worth dealing with, in my opinion. Like, yes, it's annoying that you haven't run this project in several months and now NPM has stopped working for some reason. Maybe NPM should be better. I don't... I I used to compile and store, store the compiled assets in a couple of projects just because the build time was like on the, on the, on the infrastructure that we had was just way too slow. Um, right. So we're using Envoy now to compile those assets and we will compile the assets on the build machine. So for example, if I'm doing a deploy, I'm doing Envoy run deploy from my, my computer and it will compile the assets on my computer and then async them across. Mm. So that way I've got like the full power of my iMac (laughs) building those assets rather than the virtual machine that is gimped and has issues doing that kind of stuff. Um, So, I mean, I I guess it's not that big a deal for me to, to just compile those things. And I was speaking with one of my other developers about having like a a setup shell script that when you check out a branch, you just run like composer run setup which just refers to a shell script, which will go through, it will compile the assets, it will do the composer install, it'll do all that stuff for you. So it's only one command. And once you make that part of your workflow, like you do a git checkout and, and, you know, ampersand, ampersand, composer run, setup, and it's done. You don't have to worry about it and it just happens. And in most cases, mix is really fast, especially with Webpack 4. Like it takes a couple of seconds. So... It's not like the inconvenience of recompiling everything does not outweigh the inconvenience of dealing with merge conflicts over and over again for me. Yeah, I suppose you could also set that up as a Git hook, couldn't you? Anytime you do a Git checkout, like go ahead and run this composer. Correct. Or yeah, you could, you could do that in your environment that like every time you check out, there's just a thing that runs composer run setup or whatever and it goes and it does all that for you. 
and then it's like you don't even have to think about it it just happens the only problem with with that is that you've got to set up the git hook on each project and on each machine and whatever else but aside from that uh, again that's the thing you would only do once per project per machine so yeah yeah i can see that being interesting we actually did the same thing we just had this discussion so ours basically what what i told one of my developers is like okay i want to be able to Basically, I told him, I said, nuke your ENV, take your ENV completely out. You should have nothing left but your ENV example. Delete your local database and pull down the repo and look at master and see if you can get it to run. Like, yeah. what can you do, right? Like, what do you have to do to get it to run? And then I said, put that in a shell script and add it. Yep. And that's what I want. Like, every single every single repo we have, I want you to be able to go run sh space bin slash setup dot mm-hmm. sh. And it should just do everything. Yep. And so it will copy over your ENV example to ENV. It will set up a new database for you if you don't have the database that it's looking for. It will yarn. It will yarn run production. It will run your tests. It will run your dusk tests. And Mm -hmm. then it will tell you anything extra that you need to know specific to this repository. So it might say, hey, by the way, there's these special ENV keys that you're going to need in order to be able to run this locally or something, right? So it does does all of that, yeah. But I, I don't have that yet. But I don't have that yet where it can do that for like checking out between branches, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, and then you've got these packages. I think it's Marcel myself or you know that i've got this package that does like a health check that you can just pull in and like you can make that part of the the process as well to like do the setup and then run this thing which will tell you like did i forget to copy a environment variable from the example file um and things like that as well so i will find that and link that up in the show notes for whichever of those two fine individuals are responsible for that there will be a shout out yeah. for you. So I'll let you know if I figured anything out because this guy's got some interesting ways that he kind of is handling this, these compiled assets. So he basically has three things, four things. How many things does he have? How many things? He has four things. Okay. So he has number one, don't show minified CSS in your diffs. You ever do that? Where like you have like minified mm-hmm. CSS or JavaScript or whatever and you say get diff and it shows you all these minified files and it's like, I don't want to see all that. So you can ignore those from your diffs so that when you say get diff, it doesn't show those. It's a good idea. You can say, don't let compiled files conflict in a rebase. Mm-hmm. So you can say, hey, um, just whenever there's a, con- a conflict, just grab mine. Okay. Always keep mine, right? So that it doesn't, so you don't get these merge conflicts when you're pulling it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can also say, rebuild files automatically after a rebase. So basically, mm-hmm. look at this takes care of it, right? So when you do a, hey, get rebase with master or whatever, it basically says, don't conflict so that there's no conflict, you know, there's mm-hmm. no errors that show up with these compiled files it just says always grab mine and then as soon as you as soon as you rebase it just automatically does a rebuild it kicks out a rebuild for you so that any of the files that would have been conflicting just automatically get rebuilt anyway yeah yeah right so it's not really circumventing the issue from occurring it's just mitigating its impact on you yes it's just saying yeah, yeah it's basically, exactly ignore whatever that is and then just recompile the assets which yes so you which is what you would do if you were just recompiling the assets without committing them to version control in the first place. Like that's just, that would be part of that process anyway. Mm-hmm. Except you would skip the whole, you know, implicit ignoring of that merge conflict by just not having that merge conflict in the first place. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yep. And then I would have to re, and then I'd have to build them on the server. And then I'd have to build them on the server. And it's like all this kind of stuff that you configure. But, but think about how much time that you've like gone to like, figure out how to get around this problem and you've gone and found this blog post and and the blog post is essentially saying to avoid having the conflict, just ignore the conflict and then recompile the assets anyway. Screw you, Mr. Drinda. Like you're taking it, it's ta- you're taking the long way around doing the, the 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 same thing. So No, I don't know that I am because I still get some of the benefits, right? I still get the benefits of being able to pull down a repo from any point in time and being able to say, hey, what did it look like at this point in history and see yeah. what exactly it was right i mean so you're I also still get inflating that. the size of that repository as well by keeping a history of that you know 500 kilobyte javascript file and it, like it's only 500 kilobytes but over time and who yeah i mean i'm not storing it locally so i don't care it's on github doesn't bother me <laughs> it's microsoft's problem now yes yeah, i mean certainly we're paying for it so they're <laughs> they, i mean they can store it, it doesn't bother sure. me i'm fine with that yeah you know so i don't know i don't know yeah as i said i think yeah the i mean the pros are certainly great 
that like you don't have to worry about all that compilation and you know that your deploys are going to be really quick because the slowest part of most people's deploys is the compilation of the static assets. Yeah, my deploys are freaking lightning fast, dude. It's awesome. Yeah, if you've got a, like the composer install is typically very fast. The NPM install or the yarn install is typically fast enough. And as I said, with Webpack 4, even the, the build now is pretty quick, but taking that step out, you know, you're saving yourself four to six seconds but if it's an automated build like it doesn't four to six seconds in the process that you're not really matter but so anyway interesting interesting conversation nonetheless can i yes i have one thing i don't remember if we talked about this i know that we spoke about the package on the laravel news podcast this one where it takes a snapshot of your database. Mm, okay. And for oh, your yeah, migrations. Yeah, yeah. For your migrations. For your so migrations, that, yeah, yeah. Right. And and I, I had said that like we would try that package to see because it would take 12 seconds to run our first test because we had to migrate sure. like hundred yeah. I think <laughs> I think it was something like two or three hundred migrations across six different database connections just to get our test suite to run. So it took anywhere yes. between twelve and fourteen seconds to run that first test. I couldn't use that package the way that it was implemented because all of our models and migrations sit in a separate package. So yeah. what we ended up doing is just a little shell script that we would run. Like anytime we add a migration, run the shell script. And what it would do is for each database connection, it would go and find the migrations, do a migrate fresh, and then do a MySQL dump of that database and then store a schema.sql with that, with that lot of migrations. So we would then have our own custom test case that overrides the Laravel's refresh test database method. And it would say like, if a schema.sql file exists, run that through DB connection unprepared, then run the migrations. So, you know, if we forget to rebuild that sure. schema, it would like do all that stuff. And then like, oh, here's two more migrations that I have to run. So it's still pretty quick. And then it would do like, if we tell it, to run any cedars, for example, we just have an array of cedars and database connections and it will do all of that. So we went from 12 seconds to that first migration at uh, that first test running to four seconds just wow, by crazy. combining all of the migrations into a single schema file. So I'm pretty sure this is something that, that Ruby on Rails does. It's got like a schema.rb file or something like that that I've anecdotally heard about. So it will do all its migration stuff will handle all that for you. This was a not terribly difficult thing to implement. You could conceivably do it manually. I have run into some issues with we have like one stored procedure, like a create function that we use, um, which doesn't seem to apply to the test database, even though it is in the dump. So I haven't quite figured out what that is, but apparently. I was told that procedure doesn't work anyway, so we might just get rid of it. And then I won't have to worry about this problem anymore. But yeah, that's like going from 12 seconds to four seconds and cutting our that's test huge. suite yeah. down from like 30 seconds to 16 seconds is is helpful. Yeah, that's massive. Especially if you're trying to do like sort of TDD style stuff, yeah. right? Like good luck. I mean, like if you have to wait 16 seconds before you get any result, yeah. All of Jeffrey's videos and Taylor's videos and, and Adam's videos and they're like, oh, let's just run Migrate Fresh and it's like, you know, 100 milliseconds and, and then they run the test. Uh, sorry, not Migrate Fresh. They run their test and they're like, oh, you know, my test ran in 300 milliseconds. Yeah, not when you have hundreds of migrations. It's not yeah. like the, the red-green refactor cycle is a bit slower. We actually, so we, we did sort of a, um, there's, there's a package as well where you can basically take a database and you can point to it and say, hey, give me a migration of that. Mm -hmm. And it will basically build you a fresh migration that matches the schema of that current database, right? Yeah. And so we had a project where we had a bunch of migrations, just a garbage ton of them. And they weren't serving us any purpose because we were never going to roll back down. You know what I mean? Like we were never going to go backwards on any of that stuff. So we just said, yeah, just take my just make migrations of the current tables that we have mm -hmm. in the in the database, and then said, yeah, store those as like an initial migration for each one of these tables, mm -hmm. and that sped up our tests too. That was nice. Yeah, yeah nice. it was nice to get rid of all that cruft and garbage. Like it's just like that. You know, obviously migrations are very helpful, mm -hmm. um, and they're nice to be able to do the rollback sort of thing if you needed to. But I've, I've heard of less and less people actually using that where they roll yeah. back one. I'm not sure. Yeah, I. I like the migrate. Especially you're approach. not gonna you're probably not gonna roll back like ten, right? No. You're not gonna roll back like ten migrations. No. So after you've kind of gotten a little bit past the history, I can see like reverting like the last one, mm. maybe the last two, depending yeah. on how quickly you're writing migrations. But 
after that, they pretty much lose their value pretty quickly, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like you can almost do like a squash on, you know, any that you have that aren't like more than the last two recent ones. Yeah. And the like, I like the whole migrate fresh thing. I don't like the migrate fresh thing when I'm actively developing something and I've got stuff in my test database that I refer back to over and over and over again. And then I'm like, then it's like a toss up. Like, do I really want to do this or do I just want to like manually go and delete <laughs> that migration? Yeah, because that's I, why, would, like, I, I would never run the rollback in production. So I stopped using it. But it's really helpful in development, especially when you've like just got something wrong and you're like, oh, now I've got to go and like, did I create a table? I'm like, I delete that table and then delete those three extra fields and then go and delete the migration record in the migrations table and then run it again because mm. the pain of like losing the entire database using Migrate Fresh yeah. is more than the pain of doing that manual sure. stuff. Yeah, I get that. But I, I don't want to be in a situation where I can run a rollback because the down method is there. So hmm. I don't know. What were we talking about with that the other day? We were talking about that the other day, how we were saying like, I was like, oh, I'm just going to make it where, you know, I can run these migrations from, like I can store the migrations in either of them and then I'll just make it so you can't run it in production. And you're like, you're going to, you would do that. How would you do that? And I'm like, oh, I'll just override the method that allows you to migrate on like in production. Uh, so anyway. You could probably do that. You could probably say, hey, don't allow down in production. Yeah. Just don't don't allow it. Well, you can run it. It's just not going to do anything because there are no down methods. There you go. Mm. There you go. Well, hey, hey dude, we've, we're at 53. I think that's a good point to wrap start, it up. We'll start, probably start wrapping this up. Thank our beautiful sponsors once again. Episode 57. And we want to thank our beautiful sponsors. I'm going to have to get back up to them again. See here. Uh, we want to thank Andreas Hubenthal, Joe from Work Vivo, that's Joe Lennon, JP Davy, CTO Sumo, and Rasmus Nielsen for sponsoring the show. Thanks so much. And really, MP really Cheen. It. MP Cheen. Whoever you are, you anonymous donor, you, we thank you for and your MP Cheen. Donation. Thank you very much, MP Cheen. Yeah, and thanks to all of you wonderful listeners for tuning into episode 57. Been fun, fun hanging out with you again. If you like this episode, please feel free to rate it up in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Show notes for this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 57. And of course, as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Jacob Bennett at Michael Dorinda or North South Audio. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and That's if it. you are in a situation where you need a CTO, but you cannot hire one full time, make sure you check out CTO Sumo Consulting CTOs. They're at ctosumo.com. ctosumo.com. What's that? CSS? How does they do that? Uh, shoptalkshow.com. You ever listen to Shop Talk Show? <laughs> you got to stop advertising other podcasts. Dude, I, I cut my teeth on Shop Talk Show. Chris Coyer, Dave. Oh, no. What's his last name? Now you've Dave. done it. Now you've started something you can't finish. Oh, gosh. Shop Talk Show. Dave. What's Dave's going to kill me? What's his name? Dave Rupert. Dave Rupert, of course. Yeah, Chris Coyer. Two first names, Rupert. two first names, two first names. <laughs> yeah, those guys. But they always end their show. They're always in their show with uh, shop.show.com. It's good. Every Excellent. time. We so always end ours with see in two weeks. Yeah, and then it's hit and miss as to whether it will be two weeks. Yep. So, see, see in two weeks. In two weeks. Bye. Bye.